0: Good morning. It's Nick Robinson here for SUP FM and another podcast with Tristan Boxford, who is the CEO of the APP World Tour. The APP is the Association of Paddleboard Professionals, which was formed in late 2017, but it's actually an extension of an organization that Tristan's been working on since 2010 or 2011. And you'll find out more about the history of this and, and how the ups and downs have happened. But basically, these guys nominate the world champion, the stand-up paddle world champion every single year. So last year, we had Casper Steinfirth in 2019 and social Webster as the world champions for 2019. Obviously, in 2020, we're having a little bit of a crazy year so far. So things a little bit, uh, but they still will be running later in the year. So keep an eye. And it's a really good time during this COVID-19 um, break should we say i know lots of horrible things are happening and my heart goes out to all those people affected but um a lot of other people around the world are pausing to reflect and so is the app they're pausing not to reflect but to work harder on what's coming in the future so take a look deep into the app it's a fascinating institution and it's uh, an industry which was rife with fascinating stories too so here we go tristan boxford ceo of the app Aloha and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So, with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon.
1: Yeah, so um, wow. you know, I'm pretty, pretty open with all the stuff, anyway. So, excellent, great.
0: Well. Tristan, thanks so much for joining us on the Supper Femme podcast. Really stoked to have you on. Oh, excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. So, what I mean, look, obviously, right now, middle of COVID-19, um, I realize you're now based in one of my favorite little surf towns in Portugal. How did you get here from where you grew up?
1: Um, it's kind of a long and uh, windy story, but um, I actually grew up in England. Uh, was born in France, but my grandfather was uh, born and grew up in here in Portugal, in Porto. And my mother ended up uh, growing up here till she was about 12 or 13 in Portugal as well. Um, and then moving back to England because her mother was was English. Uh, so I grew up over there. And then when I actually, I never came to Portugal in my younger years. Um, but when I uh, started progressing as a professional windsurfer, I used to come here in my kind of mid to late teens to train in the summertime. And I'd spend the summers out here in Praia do Guincho and, you know, just by Cascais And, uh, I just fell in love with the country. The people met a a lot of really, really great friends that are still some of my greatest friends uh, to this day. Um, And at the time, actually, I tried to live here, um, you know, as I was starting my fully fledged career, I'd graduated from university, but it was uh, it was challenging from because the center of the world for windsurfing back then was was in Hawaii. and, And that was where everything was pointing me to. And I ended up moving out to Hawaii. 20 uh, something years ago and uh, was over there until this point so when I finally uh, had the number one the desire to come back to Europe and spend some more time in Europe but also from a business perspective uh, needed somewhere a little bit more central uh, easier to manage the business from um, you know Portugal was really the only choice for me coming back to Europe.
0: Well it's a great place to be I mean Ericeira is such an amazing village it's definitely got some some decent surf up there and do you, do you get out every every day?
1: Well exactly I mean that's uh, one of my prerequisites for for living um, you know Ocean sports and windsurfing, surfing, stand-up paddling, every aspect of them have been such an entrenched part of my life for, you know, 30-something years. So, um, you know, wherever I live, I have to be able to get in the water every day. And Portugal is one of the most wave-rich places I've I've ever been in my life. Uh, you know, I'll even go as far as to say it's more consistent than Hawaii, which is, for some people, hard to believe, but it's it's impressively consistent. Uh, there's so many different kinds of breaks. Um you know, I love it here. You know, the water temperature is cold. That takes, takes a little getting used to. But other than that, I love it. I, I find it a beautiful place. And, you know, it definitely is, is home to me, like Hawaii is home to me as well.
0: No, yeah, you're spot on there with the consistency because I actually saw some statistics. I think it was from Surfline or something. They were saying that Erisera itself is probably um, 42% of the time it breaks, um, which is probably one of the most consistent waves in the world. So that's, that's quite incredible.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you can surf 340 something days a year. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm between longboarding and, and all the different kinds of surfing it's very rare mm-hmm. today where you can't get in the water uh so do you do a, do a, a lot free. of
0: sub surfing now
1: um i'm predominantly sub surfing i'd say uh i still shoreboard i still longboard but uh and i still windsurf um but probably 80 percent of the time i'm i'm stand up paddle surfing so
0: okay so how did you get into sub i mean, can you relate the very first time when you jumped on a board what did it feel like and, and where was it
1: uh, I was in Hawaii um, and it was a gradual thing. Um, I just, it, it was something that came around. Laird was starting to get involved with it back in the kind of early to mid two, 2000s, first decade there. Um, and uh, he was surfing when it was bigger. I remember a couple of windier days at Lanes, which is just to the left of Ho'okipa on the North Shore of, of Maui. Um, and he was riding this giant uh, sort of 11 or 12 foot board. And it was big and windy and, and pretty hectic actually for a up board. Um, but, it, you know, it was interesting. It was just another dimension of surfing for me as I was looking at it back then. And, um, you know, and then we actually produced an event uh, before I'd even really got into the sport. I'd done it a few times uh, and it was interesting to me because it kind of drew from a number of different water sports backgrounds. Um, but we ended up producing an event called the Ocean Games back in 2007 that had shoreboard, longboard, stand up, windsurf, kite, um, surf, canoe, tandem. So every form of riding, riding waves that you could imagine. Uh, and it was actually the first stand up contest, I think, ever, but it was a part of this Ocean Games event. Um, so it was uh, a super cool experience. We had everyone from Dave Kalama to Ekolu Kalama, Robbie Nash, uh, Bonga Perkins, all these kind of guys participating. And, um, you know, it was the start of something. I then moved to Kauai and completely fell in love with the sport because of the, uh, you know, number one, being a windsurfer, you used to have su- having something in your hands and using it to turn the board to your advantage. Uh, number two, I'm a bigger guy. So, bigger board I can turn a bigger board easier than than smaller people uh so you know it kind of really fit my style of surfing and I just completely fell in love with it during that time in Kauai and uh that passion has only kind of grown more as as time has gone on
0: but so why the hop from windsurfing to sup I mean when did you really think that you could get into the business of sup and and how did that come about
1: um I, I wouldn't say it was really a hop from windsurfing to to sup I think you know Like I said, I produced that event called the Ocean Games back in 2007. My foray kind of into the events and media world from being an athlete was earlier than that, Uh, started to create some reality TV projects uh, around action sports in general, Um, windsurfing being kind of my core base and background, Um, but I was very involved in the surfing world as well. So kind of I saw it all as connecting as all these different sports that had the ocean and riding surfing in common. Uh, And stand-up paddling was really the first sport that seemed to connect the dots between all the different ocean sports. Um, you know, in the past it's you're either a shoreboarder, you're a longboarder, you're a windsurfer, you're a kite surfer. Whereas stand-up paddling kind of drew from all the different sports. And, you know, while <laughs> I think it's rich to say it's a waterman sport, the people who end up being really, really good at it are the guys who are kind of vers-, vers versatile and able to switch between the different sports. And I think that's what attracted me the most. So is that what led you to
0: eventually create the Waterman League?
1: Exactly. You know, I was building off that ocean games experience. It was this idea of uh, a connection point for all the sports and stand up paddling was such a logical first step for an organization that was called the Waterman League, because as I said, it, it kind of stretched into all these demographics from canoe paddling to, to surfing to all to forms of water sports. So uh, that's what led to the launch of that. And I was consulting with all that kind of uncles of ocean sports, as they're known in, in Hawaii during that time. And I presented the idea of uh, at that time, it was just a surfing world tour. Um, the idea of building something that could grow for the future. And they loved the idea and got all behind it. Um, you know, we had an advisory board of Brian Hillana, Archie Kalepa, Robbie Nash, Kainomaggi, uh, Bonga Perkins, a lot of, and Dwayne DeSoto, a lot of the guys that were kind of in their early days of stand up paddling and, and, sort of laying the foundations for the sport so to speak um and so yeah we we started with an exhibition event in 2009 and launched the full tour in 2010
0: but uh, you know when you talk about traditional SUP events now i mean there's always been a challenge between the racing side and the surfing side so how has that played out over the years because obviously like you were saying this is a diverse uh, mix of all all the different ways of wave riding but how did the racing side factor in in those days
1: um you know, I,
0: again, I don't really
1: see it as a, a competition between the two. I think it's it's a natural evolution of the sport. Um, you know, when we started, uh, Battle the Paddle started around the same time as our surfing events. Uh, and at, back then, it was very much a community event, but racing was sort of on the, you know, behind surfing at that point. Surfing was, was the sport of stand-up paddling in those early days. Uh, Laird and those guys were doing downwind runs, that was starting to become something. Um, but it was very, very early days. Um, you know, and certainly when we launched the tour, the focus was purely on surfing. Um, but over those first couple of years, it became clear that, you know, there was a real opportunity with, with racing because you're, you're no longer restricted to ocean venues. Um, you know, it's a first across the line uh, format, which for com- competition is always a great thing. Uh, and there was this new breed of athletes that that were coming up. You know, Kai was able to adapt to those kind of things. Connor Baxter was becoming a dominant force. Um, you had Danny Ching from a different kind of OC background. Travis Grant. You had all these people coming from these different sectors and and uh, converging on a on a discipline that was really could be really exciting and and had a lot of potential and. And we saw the growth potential of it and launched the kind of racing world series in end of 2011.
0: Right. I mean, surely it must be, um, logistically, it must be difficult to try and put a a surfing uh, competition, mix it in with a racing competition at times.
1: Um, Yeah, in the early days, especially, um, because, you know, we grew this company from the ground up. We didn't have any startup capital or anything like that. We just, I built it off relationships that I had uh, in all the different places. I've been somewhat of a global citizen all my life, so I had good contacts all over the world. Which allowed us to kind of build immediately a five event tour uh, from nothing. Um, And then we, you know, as the sport sort of blew up globally, it was still in its early days. So everybody wanted to run an event and we were keen to have global expansion. So we started bouncing all over the world. And those days started to get really, really complicated. Um, And it meant that, you know, their capacity to be able to produce a world class event uh, or provide the infrastructure for a world class event perhaps wasn't as high as it should be and our ability to move people around the world with the budgets that we were working with were, were challenging. So, um, you know, it was a time where we did a lot of bouncing around the world. We did a, a lot of everything ourselves. Um, but it was an exciting time and, and, uh, you know, it was a lot to juggle, but it was interesting.
0: So that was like, like 20, That was sort of 2011, right? Yeah. twenty
1: eleven
0: Launched at the end of
1: it, we launched with the turtle Bay finals, uh, as kind of, or a turtle Bay kind of, exhibition event and then we launched the tour in 2012 for for racing
0: okay so then from 2012 coming up to the present day obviously a lot has gone on and uh, things have changed quite a lot and, and also a name change to the app world tour so how did that all come about can you just take us through the last what nine years
1: absolutely yeah i mean 2012 to 16 uh, was kind of just what I said. We 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 produced events in six uh, six continents. We had uh, we produced events in everywhere from Lake Grey up in Patagonia to you know Hamburg to uh, Finland to everywhere you could possibly imagine. We did a downwind race from Nathandola down to to um, Namotu in Fiji. Um, we literally did it all, which was which was really exciting and really interesting to explore. You know the boundaries of where you could take this sport because it's just so versatile and it's so Uh, adaptable to wherever you go, which was such an exciting element to it. Um, But as as we grew, it was, you know, the bandwidth was getting more and more challenging. We were sort of caught in that difficult space between kind of grassroots grouping together some third-party events and a professional platform, you know, like the World Surf League or the Windsurfing Association that were producing professional events for a sport. Um, And we were such a small team that weren't funded. We were just building it through grant hard work as i said and 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 sponsorship so we got to a point where um you know we needed to evaluate what was the best next step and it was starting to become really challenging to to grow because we were just permanently running and there was no chance to reflect no time to to catch up and catch a breath um so around end of 2017 or through 2017 we did a a capital raise finally raised some funds to be able to um you know re uh, reinvigorate the the organization, figure out um, a kind of a a refined vision for what it should be uh, and kind of move heavily in that direction. And that's what happened late 2017. Um, We had that incredible Red Bull Heavy Water event, which was held in the most (laughs) radical conditions imaginable. Uh, I remember that. We (laughs) rolled straight into rebranding as APP World Tour. Uh, We took a new focus on the major markets um, and we said, you know, the... The beauty of, of water sports is all this, you know, everybody coming together for a festival to to appreciate the sport. And what we found were some of the limiting factors and the event uh, coordinators were finding was that when you produce events in core pockets, core communities, you have your core community. But to grow beyond that is quite difficult because it requires people to come out to your venue. Uh, and so we saw the opportunity with this versatile sport to bring surfing to the people. Um, and that's really what the City Paddle Festival's concept was about, was this ability to bring major exciting events to major city venues that big corporate brands can get around, uh, major activations can be had. Uh, and you know, this has been a big growing feature of what we've done over the last two years with the, the launch of the new APP world tour, uh, with our events in London, New York, um, Osaka, Paris, Where we're seeing meaningful numbers both on the water but off the water as well. You know, in New York, we had 30,000 people come through the site. Um, You know, and it was one of the most refreshing things to have people. You know, the, the number one question was I never realized that this was, you know, kind of a professional sport. You know, this is something that I've tried once on holiday or I saw here or it's been in an advert. I didn't realize it was this. This is exciting. We had a big screen up underneath the Freedom Tower. We had built a 20 meter by 10 meter inflatable pool that we had kids' clinics going all day. Um, So, you know, that's sort of the approach of the APP has been to, on the one side, to professionalize the sport, create a a meaningful global tour that that the professionals can follow, Um, but at the bottom end, create the the most accessible access point for the sport possible and really create a festival atmosphere that makes it something not intimidating and something uh, very inclusive um, for people to get engaged with.
0: Excellent. So you're covering the whole gamut of everybody just starting and learning and also the pros themselves
1: exactly we want to connect the gap that there is between a core racing community and the rest of the world because um, what people you know when people get excited and all into the racing side of things they forget that it's probably eight percent of the market or ten percent of the market and uh you know 90 percent is people who are free riding having fun whether it be surfing whether it be paddling on a lake whether it be just trying the sport for the first time uh, and what we want to do is bring all those people together into one kind of community that can really engage in the sport and and Support its future growth.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing. You did you touched on the fact that not many people are aware of the of the world tour. People just think stand up paddling is something fun to do on holiday. Um, because I used to run a sub touring company down here in Portugal. And uh, it was unbelievable. I said, oh, you guys realize that there's a world champion? And they're like, oh, no, we didn't even know it was a sport. So it's really nice to see the people understanding a little bit more about it now and, and uh, getting to grips with the fact that it's a professional sport.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's been an interesting process. You know, it's an education process. It's, you know, a lot of work and, and effort put into creating media that can surpass just core market outputs, you know. So we, you know, we do TV for CBS, for Fox, for... Um, your sport for all kinds of international networks so that we can tell the story of stand-up paddling beyond just our core market. Um, Because that ultimately is how we're going to be able to grow it. Um, You know, it's what helps to get tourism boards interested, host venues, uh, all the different things that are necessary in order for, you know, a sport to really move forward and, and have a professional, a legitimate professional platform.
0: Yeah, because I mean, it appears that you're shifting a little in your content generation with um, immersed TV. And how do you see the future of of app content generation? You know, I mean,
1: it's it's always been something we've wanted to embark on, but you know, bandwidth is always an, <laughs> your biggest enemy when you're you're building and growing all the time. Um, you know, we're taking this time, this kind of forced time off at the moment, which is not time off, obviously, at all, but yeah. we're, we're <laughs> taking this time to restructure a little bit. We're, we're revamping a lot of uh, the ways we operate, um, what media goes out when, being a lot more strategic with it, uh, creating a new, new streams of content. You know, one of the biggest frustrations is, you know, we've, we've been producing content uh, over the, for the sport of stand-up paddling for the last kind of 11 or 12 years. And we have the most massive vault of like high quality HD content that, you know, 70% of it hasn't even been seen. I mean, we produce the live broadcast, we put out highlights, we do the things we do, but then it's like, pack up, put those drives down, move on to the next event. And, you know, the luxury of this, this period now is that we're starting to dive into that content, really tell the more stories about the athletes, uh, really build, uh, the engagement that we can around the tour that just extends right beyond just events. Um, so that's definitely one big part of it. Immerse TV is just one of those products that we're looking to roll out over the, the next few months as we grow here.
0: Okay. And when you go around the world to all these different, um, different, uh, competitions, do you guys do it all in house? Do you take a team with you or do you contract somebody else to do that?
1: We have a core team. So I've got a media producer that's been with me for, um, well over a decade. Um, actually, I met my wife and I met him uh, one week apart. We always joke about it. It's my two wives. <laughs> um, but, um, he's been sort of my right-hand man in terms of growing the media product over the last ten years, uh, and then we have a few core cool team members with him supporting him. But outside of that, we have a core kind of group of contractors in each global region that that help us to produce the you know the content that we do in each area. Um, but the the content essentially is all produced in-house but it's through a network of contractors that are regular contractors with us that have been working with us for the last
0: decade basically so well it's great i mean you guys are doing a great job it's wonderful to watch the live streams it really is amazing um but just hopping back to that world tour itself are there any lessons to learn either good or bad from other world tours and different sports that you can relate to
1: 100 i mean you know i spend a lot of time analyzing you know what happens in other sports how other sports have grown and I try to take uh, the lessons they learned um, and the lessons they continue to learn, <laughs> uh, and the lessons that we continue to learn along this journey. You know, I think nothing is ever ever perfect, and that's what's great about life—you're always learning. Um, but uh, no, I, I certainly analyze everything going on with the WSL. Um, you know, as a, a close comparison, being part of the surfing sport family, um, and, uh, and and you know that's something that you know I, I look at it. It's something they've had, had the luxury of having a lot of capital investment. They built uh, an incredibly, o- incredible product over the last few years of, of in- incredibly high quality programming, but it's somewhat over-engineered for the market as it is now, and that's something that you know we want to build organically and build something that has got can stand the test of time and really grow um, for the years to come. So you know those are some of the lessons we learned. I think um, you know looking at Iron Man, looking at Tough Matter, um, we're trying to be as unone-dimensional as, as possible where there's multiple business units, multiple revenue streams to help the business grow and support the business, ways in which we can engage with both the endemic industry for bringing in larger corporate brands. Um, you know, I think it's it's such a unique product that we have. It's a hybrid of so many things that I think there's a lot of different pockets of, of, of like you said, lessons we can learn from festivals, from uh, mass participation sports events, from core lifestyle events like surfing um, to endurance events. And I think if you can bring... The best of all those things into one product and deliver something, you know, of high quality. I think that's, you know, that's the end goal.
0: Mm, absolutely, sure. And what about the windsurfing world tour? Is that an example to follow or not?
1: Um, it is. I think you know, windsurfing's got a more challenging uh, kind of uh, roadmap than we do now. Um, it's it's a, a sport that's kind of diminished in in size and popularity compared to to where we're at. Where we're in a, a growth, um, you know, we're in a growth period right now with stand up paddling. Um, you know, a lot of the core industry will say that it's slowed down and it's it's doing this, but at the end of the day, I, I think the international pickup is still growing massively. It's just the core industry following is is tapered off a little bit or is flattened, I should say. Um, but windsurfing is definitely diminished a lot. It's a really exciting sport, but it has a lot of barriers to entry in terms of you know cost of product, in terms of difficulty, uh, and all the kind of challenging variables that, that the sport has compared to stand up paddling, where anywhere you are. Anywhere there's a body of water, you can jump on the water and do something, uh, and I think it is a, an incredible attribute to the sport, and and it, it provides real hope for the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. I'd love to get into the stats a little bit a little bit later about the sub industry, but for now, um, I think I've always seen a problem myself with with how do you deal with different world champions from different areas. Like for example, Casper Steinfath and and Social are the APT World Tour champions, right? Yeah, um, but. If you look at example for, uh, I love SupRacer. I don't know if you follow um, SupRacer, but it's a fantastic blog. And he's got a whole, um, a whole set of rankings, which take about 113 global races into account. And then Casper is just 10th on those rankings. Um, then there's the ISA World Championships and the ICF as well. So how do all these competing factors play out for you? Well, I think there's two
1: pockets there. On the one hand, uh, the ISA is the, you know, uh, the IOC Federation for Surfing Sports. Um, They traditionally have produced a yearly uh, world championship. You know, I always look at it more of a games where it's gold, silver, bronze, which is how they award their awards anyway. So that's the sort of differentiation, in my opinion. Uh, A winner at the ISA event is more of a a gold medalist rather than a a world champion, I'd say. Um, But, you know, they obviously have based on the other sports models where they have world championships organized by the Federation. And then the professional sporting body they're two different things uh and that's parallels across all the different sports so there's two different pockets of 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 i'd say confusion there in in some respects you know on the one side you have the federation level which is you know the isa is the the federation for surfing sports uh they produce a single event each year which is uh somewhat of a stand-up paddle games i i like to see it as rather than a world championships because a professional tour is crowns a world champion at the culmination of the season, whereas the you know Federation World Championships is an annual event in the same way that it is in athletics and in many different sports under the kind of IOC model. Um, so that's the differentiation there. You know they, they retain the world championship title because of the parallels with other sports. Um, but again, I kind of see it more as a gold medalist as opposed to you know world champion. Um, but you know there's two ways of looking at that. Uh, Absolutely.
0: And the Canoe Federation, I mean, because they've always been trying to get their, it appears that they've been trying to get their hands on stand-up paddle for years. And it's always, been, I know, definitely in Portugal as well, There was, a, um, they ran the, the sport down here as well before the surf federation tried to get it away. So I'm not sure where it is at the moment, but that's also a, a, a big challenge, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been an unfortunate battle the last few years, um, you know, for the first sort of nine or 10 years of development, uh, the ICF showed no interest in in stand-up paddling. And then in the last few years, um, you know, as, as IOC changes its vis- vision as far as kind of being more modern and, and embracing new sports and new trends, I think the ICF realized it was important to jump on something that was gaining in, quickly in popularity across the globe uh, and kind of technically fits into their realm because people are using a paddle. Um, you know, What they didn't take into account was that the ISA had been working in the sport for, for nearly a decade. Uh, and that stand-up paddling at its its roots is a, is a surfing sport. Um, so, you know, obviously there's different perspectives on that and different arguments around that, you know, but I really bring it back to those two key points that, you know, really stand-up paddling is a, a surfing sport. It's a board riding sport. Yes, they have a paddle, um, but its roots are in surfing. ISA has been nurturing the sport since 2008. And, um, They've been building this legacy, and, and the ICF j- jumped on the bandwagon really, really late. Jumped on a couple of existing events for a year or so, but not wholeheartedly. Uh, and then they did their first event in, in China. I think it was last year, um, and said we've we've done more for the sport for, than anyone. So that that I felt was a little unwarranted. Um, but there's no, there's an arbitration battle going on, um, you know, at a, at a federation level. Um, so you know, we're waiting for the final decision on that in the next few months as to who the is Will recognise as the official federation for stand-up paddling. Um, obviously, I've, I'm pretty clear on on where we stand. Uh, you know, we we certainly stand for the ISA because we believe it's important not only from a, a what is right perspective, but also for the future of the sport. You know, a lot of sports depend on on really solid and and valuable marketing efforts. Um, and the reason why the ICF loves stand-up paddling so much, and the reason why stand-up paddling has such huge popularity, is because it's connected to the surfing lifestyle. It's an it's got that surfing allure that 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 transcends other sports in some respects. Um, but it's the most accessible form of surfing, you know, and that's what makes it so attractive. And the paddle sports struggle in that area because it's not such an all-access, you know, such an appealing venture to jump in a kayak and do something. While a lot of people kayak, and I'm not taking it away from that. Um, it's that surfing element brings a little bit of a wild wow factor to stand-up paddling, and certainly helps with. The marketing of it at a global level and i can speak uh, on that from experience of the last decade of selling you know the world championship
0: sure that's good and it's also lovely to see that um, you're certified by the isa along with the wsl so that does give you a lot of legitimacy doesn't it
1: yeah no it definitely helps um it definitely helps so you know we're very supportive of that and you know i respect anything that happens in the sport and you know we'll we'll obviously run with it but you know we we have our firm belief of what is right and what is important for the sport and and you know that that's the kind of the position where we stand uh and then as far as the you know the other various rankings and things are out there um you know i don't think in any other sport people would say you know imagine if we're going to say dakovic oh he won the he won on the atp rankings but if we count you know the 147 events that happen elsewhere in the world um into one ranking he might not be one number one um I think at the end of the day, at some point, at, at a professional level, there needs to be a, co- a comprehensive tour where all the best in the world are consistently up against each other at every stop. Otherwise, you know, Danny Ching was here one week, Connor was there next week. We're going to roughly put together points and end up with a winner. Um, you know, Casper competed against Danny, Artur, uh, Connor, Daniel Josoyo, Bruno Josuyo all those athletes through the year, and he won. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. And you know, for the marketing of any sport, that's an important thing. And and while I, it's it's great to see community sites like SUP Racer and Total SUP and all these guys um, following the sport and, and creating fan engagement through, through what they're doing, um, I think it's a mistake to look at that as a, you know, a confusion from a title perspective. I think it's, it's a journalist analysis from their perspective of the sport rather than a, a world tour platform that decides a world
0: champion. Sure. absolutely. And while we're talking about world champions, could you just explain for those of the uh, people out there who don't know the world championship point scoring system?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for surfing is quite simple. Um, we have the events that happen in the year, depending on how many events there are. There's a discard or not a discard. This year, we don't have a discard. Uh, so it's based on the three events. Uh, and we have a point system from 10,000, Uh, going down from there so the the, obviously the most points wins um in racing uh you know the, the ultimate accolade which we tried to keep simple um for the reasons we just discussed there um because we want the public to be able to understand it instantly and not say but hang on a second isn't this guy world champion uh we wanted to keep it really simple there's one overall world champion and it's the overall best racer in the world uh and that's across all kinds of different conditions different formats and with the primary distances being, you know, a distance race, 10 kilometers or more and uh, a sprint race or sorry, sprint elimination, which identifies the fastest sprint racer. Uh, and while we do celebrate, uh, those two disciplines independently. And, and, you know, we say that this is the fastest, you know, the world champion sprint racer, essentially in the year, the world title is based on the two, two results combined. And it's a similar point system to surfing where they'll gain points in both distance races and sprint races, and those points are combined to, to create their overall title.
0: So they get 10,000 points for a win in a race as well?
1: Well, they get 10,000 uh, points for a win in a distance race and 10,000 points for a win in a, a sprint race, for example. Um, okay. And then at the end of the year, what we did in, in, early, in the earlier days of the World uh, Tour, we did it where it was event wins that culminated in the title. Um, and we kind of, we transitioned to say, um, to accumulate the result, the race wins in each, uh, through the year. So for example, uh, Casper counted rebel heavy water, uh, and he counted the sprint in New York. Um, I, I can't remember if that was exactly the case, but he, he was able to discard one distance race and one sprint race. And it wasn't discard. It, they weren't counted as event wins. So each mm-hmm. one was counted independently, if that makes sense. So yeah. distance win got you 10,000 in New York and your distance win in Paris got you 10,000. Uh, your sprint third place got you 6,500 points in, Osaka, and uh, you know, and it's kind of done like that, where you choose your best results, your best distances. It was, I think, last year it was your best four distances and the best four sprints. that calculated the overall result.
0: Okay, let's look back over over 2019 because um, there were eight events in 2019, right? Five racing and three surfing. Is that correct? Yes. So, which one stood out for you the most? Four,
1: four actually. We had four, four surfing in fact.
0: Oh, what is that, Barbados, Grand Canaria? Grand Canaria, Barbados, New York, and Sunset. Of course, you surfed in New York as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So New York was like a double event where you surfed and raced.
1: Exactly. So we had um, the race around Statue of Liberty for the distance. Um, which is sort of that iconic city race. And then we had uh, surf sprint racing out in Long Beach and surfing out in Long Beach.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and what were the planned events for 2020? Obviously, the virus has put a spanner in the works, but um, what are the planned events and what, what do you think are actually going to happen this year?
1: You know, it was super unfortunate. We were looking to bring back uh, Maui as a kind of downwind special event um, this year. Uh, and the idea of that was to really celebrate, you know, downwind racing, which is generally the athlete's favorite as far as racing is concerned. Um, and we had a unique format that was more akin to surfing where you have a holding period and you can pick the best days within that holding period. Um, so that was planned for this year. Unfortunately, that was for early July, uh, and given everything going on in the world and, and the uncertainty that we're still in, um, you know, we took the decision fairly early to say the first two events, which would have been Pornichet in France and, and Maui, we had to pull off the calendar for just to give people some kind of certainty in these uncertain times rather than wondering if and how they adapt their training and are they going to be able to travel and, you know, all the difficulties that, that come with preparing for, the, for a world championship tour.
0: Great. Okay. I've just got one last question about the world tour. was yeah. um, I mean, an amazing event like the Euro tour popped up a couple of years back and um, I just think they're doing a fantastic job. Does the APP world tour interface with the Euro all?
1: Um, yeah, we're, we're definitely open and we, you know, I think what they've developed by linking together independent events across Europe and, and uh, facilitating travel between the events and, and promoting centrally through the Euro tours, it definitely, uh, it's a great model for, for European development. And I think it's, it is a super cool grassroots series. Um, you know, we, we, we have been looking at from a qualification standpoint, we used, uh, you know, um, results from those events uh, this past year to qualify for this year's tour. Um, and, you know, we're exploring always how we can work together with the various different organizations and bodies across the globe to really help growth of the sport. Because um, communication and collaboration is always the, the most efficient way of going forward and, and the best way for everybody.
0: Excellent. Great. So can we just dig into the sub industry a bit? I mean, because obviously being at the forefront of the industry, you must have an idea of some of the stats. Um, so if, if you could draw a graph about the growth of the sub industry what would it look like starting in say 2005 or something
1: um you know I think in the early days it grew as a kind of core sport um, so the early stage was was quick pickup from like water sports users in general uh, as you look to, to windsurfing kite surfing even um, outrigger canoe and those kind of sports transferred over to it pretty quickly uh, but then suddenly it started snowballing as um, as you know, hotels and, uh, tour operators such as yourself. Uh, and, um, you know, all these kind of other sectors started taking interest and realizing, wow, this is, you know, rather than windsurfing where you, you don't know what board and sail you need to have for people to be able to use. And likely the one you have, isn't going to be right for the people that come stand up paddling. If you have a board and a paddle, somebody can go out and do something. Uh, so, so it was a really cool, um, opportunity for, for tourism destinations. Um, you know, production became a lot cheaper. Um, you saw a lot of kind of no brand boards, which a lot of the industry hate. (laughs) Um, but in, you know, in some ways it's, it's, it's kind of a blessing too, because it creates a low cost entry to the sport. And if, if people really engage in a sport, generally they'll, um, you know, they'll kind of progressive uh, progress gear to, to gear up to get something really good um, you know that Costco board isn't going to do the same in, in two months time you, you're gonna want you know whatever it is an infinity or a Nash or a starboard or something like that um, so you know I think what's going on in the industry right now is that that massive boom that happened over the first uh, sort of decade uh, where a lot of the you know the big brands that we know the starboards the Nashes the fanatics the um, you know all, uh, the siCS they they grew really quickly. And and the boards that were available were these kind of premium boards that everybody was willing to spend on because it wasn't a huge investment. It was a significant investment, but it wasn't out of control. Uh, and then suddenly this wave of, of kind of copies and, and uh, no brand boards came to the marketplace and, and sort of flooded the marketplace, which took a lot of sales away from those core brands. Um, so you know, then you have your dedicated, passionate enthusiasts who perhaps they're not buying boards as often as they were. Uh, and so it slows that growth trend for for the brands. And a lot of those brands kind of did their five-year projections based on this continued growth, and then suddenly it flattened more. So I think it it created a, a transition point for the industry that we're currently in. Um, I don't see – I mean, obviously, it's negative because it's a, it, a tail-off of, as far as global sales are concerned for those core brands. Um, but overall I think in terms of the sports growth it's still on a, on a healthy increase and I think mm-hmm. if we manage the sport correctly which is one of the things you know that we're obviously committed to do as, a, as an organization is to to figure out how we can engage these you know every now and then enthusiasts to become passionate sports enthusiasts um, because that's what's going to grow the ultimate growth for the, the core endemic brands with a higher price point board and quality boards Um and to make the whole place more, you know healthier, and then you still have these cheaper boards to get people on the water and out there, and then you kind of have progression into the sport through the premium brands.
0: Absolutely. And so, how many people do you reckon stand up paddle worldwide right now? In your opinion,
1: you know, I've seen so many millions of estimates. We even had an independent study done, and you know, there was some pretty ambitious numbers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, I kind of look at it like I've seen a lot of surfing reports too, where they talk about the number of surfers, and I think it's more people who are interested in surfing rather than people who actually surf. Whereas I think, you know, potentially some of the stats for stand-up paddling are interesting because, you know, you're, you're, the likelihood of them actually being practitioners is a lot higher because uh, it's a lot easier to do. Um, you know, but we, we saw an estimated Facebook reach of 63 million, but I don't think that's how many stand-up paddlers there are. But, you know, when you think about the growth, uh, even in countries like India, Russia, um, China, you know, all these um, territories are starting to actually grow significantly with the sport. Um, And we've been getting some great reports in those areas, you know, on top of the European growth that has been accelerating a lot more over the last few years. It's probably slowed a little bit now, but um, still growing fast. Uh, U.S. is, is... the, the growth curve slowed a little bit but again i think at that entry level it's still going pretty fast
0: so i mean if you could put a number because 63 million sounds sounds crazy because yeah. i know the surf supposedly there's a between 17 and 35 million surfers in the world according to the isa i think it was and a couple of studies that were done over the last 10 years right. um but you reckon i don't know if you just put a number on it like it's really really tough for 10 million 15 million 20 million
1: yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I would say it's not far off surfing at all. If you know, and if not rapidly, potentially overtaking pretty soon, um, because if you think about the different applications that stand up paddling has, and the different, you know, leisure activities that are focused around stand up paddling, from SUP yoga to fishing to being in whitewater to being on rivers to you know, and the locations that you can do it, um, mm. you know, these new regions that you know, Hungary. Uh, um, you know, any of these countries, you know, the fact that our world champion is from Denmark. I mean, you just, you know, yeah. I remember in the early days when Casper used to come and do the event in sunset, our Hawaiian commentator was like, uh, would, would joke about the fact that I'm from the great surfing nation of Denmark.
0: <laughs> you know <laughs> What's it called? Cold Hawaii.
1: Yeah. And now it's called Hawaii and it's developed this whole resurgence of, of like interest in, in surf culture. And I think the whole thing is just so positive. Um, and uh, you know, and I think that is where those numbers going back to the numbers. I think you know the growth is is the growth potential is significant, and the real growth, while hard to estimate, has to be coming up to equal the surfing, if not surpassing it. You know, and, and wow, while, that's
0: amazing. Because yeah. I, yeah, I, I remember Led Hamilton saying years ago, he said, "I'm predicting that SUP can be much bigger than surfing." Because as you said, all those reasons that you said, it makes so much sense because it's so much more um, diverse.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, quite frankly, surfing is really difficult um yeah and and i i'm the most passionate surfer ever but you know you see people going out for their first time and the amount of people that will get demoralized on the first session and never go back is probably pretty high um because you go out get a beating in the shore break and you come in feeling pretty demoralized because you didn't even get out once um and stand-up paddling you kind of have the opposite (laughs) impact where you jump on a board the first time and you feel like a hero um, yeah, because you're paddling up and down, and you do it right away, and that's a really satisfying thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So, listen, if you're a kid looking to make a profession out of SUP, probably like you know maybe you were when when you were starting out in the windsurfing pro um, scenario, do you reckon that's an option for for kids to make a career out of SUP these days? Is there enough cash in the sport?
1: Um, I think it's still early days. Um, you know, it's still challenging for you know, especially depending on the industry brands that are and you know, as we discussed, you know that they're, they're having to kind of wreath think their strategies and how they build for the future at the moment, it's still, you know, it's, it's definitely a possibility, but it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, I think the, the future is a lot brighter. I think the growth potential and the um, you know, we see it more as like a PGA model of, of people being able to be instructors, people being able to choose different places in the sport that can subsidize a pathway to a, a tight, you know, to a career on the world tour, for example, you know, so that, it becomes more of a, an open opportunity for people rather than just like those who've got some cash or are lucky with one sponsor to go or, you know, going from prize money to prize money. Uh, it makes it a bit of an easier road. Um, but mm-hmm. I definitely see it as a 100% viable prospect. We see enough pros able to, to, to engage and follow the whole tour um and you know from a my perspective
0: there's a lot of opportunity too because many of the pros are doing that as well supplementing their income already doing retreats and um you know obviously um, courses and all kinds of things writing books all kinds of amazing ways of supplementing the income
1: exactly and that's you know the sport has that kind of diversity of appeal where you can be quite creative with how you make money it's not just that one result that's gonna you know make your career i was fortunate to see that as a windsurfer because you know windsurfing is not the biggest sport in the world and um, when I was doing my career, I saw the opportunity to, to write stories and, and tell stories from a unique way of life. And, and that helped me, uh, you know, make my career happen in windsurfing in addition to obviously competing on the tour. But it, it was certainly not one dimensional in terms of how I approach it. And I think the, the athletes of today uh, have realized that. And in this modern world, you have to be quite versatile. You've got to be ready with more than just talent to, to, to have a sport, professional sporting career.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I know like sub racing is an elite sport by definition and by name. So what does the APP do to build the sport at a more basic level? I know you've touched on this a little bit before, but if you could just expand a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we, when we kind of re uh, refined our model back at the end of 2007, 17, sorry. Um, you know, we looked at Paris as an example of of kind of that more mass participation opportunity. And it wasn't necessarily the engaged, uh regular racer it was it was everybody um it was a chance to engage bucket list people people who were just in it for a laugh and to, ca- to capture that spirit of fun and entertainment as well as you know competition um and that's really you know i think the magic of it for the future for the app we 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 want to hit all these various targets. You know, on the one side, we want to hit create a professional platform that provides a dynamic spectacle for the audiences from a media and on site perspective. Creates icons in the sport that youth can look up to and, and say, "Wow, I want to do that in my life. I want to be a stand up paddler. This is it. <laughs> you know, I want to be Zane Sports. I want to be Kaytlin. I want to be one of these guys." Um, yeah. And then, you know, at a qualify level, provide opportunity for for young kids to get into the sport and competitive adults to come in and, and fight for their way to, to get onto tour. Um, and then from a kind of amateur level to have competitive racing, that's fun uh, in cool locations, uh, you know, with a, with a great community around it. And then at an entry level for people to jump in and, and just be involved from a participatory standpoint without necessarily the goal of being a regional champion or beating your mate or whatever it might be. Um, so I think yeah. it's trying to figure out how you can cater to all those different elements. And that's what we've tried to do with the city paddle festival concept is is exactly that is is try to reach that market that's just oh, we love sup yoga and just cruising around with our friends on a board well you can do that at an event there you know there's sup yoga clinics there's a gathering of like-minded people um and you'll find you've got a lot more in common with even the competitive uh sports people at that uh at that gathering because you're all sharing in one passion which is being on the water and, and paddling around and that that's kind of the spirit of what we're trying to build
0: was that in paris
1: this is in New York. This is in Paris. This is in London. Um, Osaka. Oh,
0: brilliant. So you can there's a mass participation thing in every event. Exactly. Well, not every event. Oh, but events.
1: Yeah. So, for example, in Osaka, we had 400, 450 participants, I think, paddling through the center of the city. Um, oh. We had ten thousand people coming through the site, uh, even despite pretty crappy weather. Um, so, and we had, you know, we built this um, inflatable pool concept that we kind of put in all our major city events. Um, that's a twenty meter by ten meter inflatable pool. It's about waist deep. Uh, it's great for doing clinics for kids. It's great for SUP yoga sessions. So you have that at the center of the venue. You have racing going on around it. Uh, there's movie presentations, there's uh, other yoga clinics, there's vendors, there's, you know, kind of a lot of different things going on. Uh, you know, and it's it's still, we're refining the concept and refining the, the offering and building out what this can be for the future. Um, but the basis of it is that. Uh, and in Paris, you know, it's a thousand people on the start line um, on the River Seine, you know, and inside the boat show, it's, it's a packed uh, arena for, you know, for the guys to, to check out the, the fastest sprint racing in the game in
0: a pool. <laughs> it all sounds super exciting. So what's next um, for the APP as a brand?
1: Um, yeah, we just, like I said, it's, uh, it's, it's been one of those weird times where on the one hand, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's just absolutely horrible what's going on in the world. And, and, you know, really obviously hoping and praying it all clears up really quickly here um but at the same time it's given us uh, a chance to get off the hamster wheel (laughs) i call it because you know we're permanently running event to event season to season and it's very rare you get a chance to just step back uh and you know look at everything and review everything and figure things out so you know we're really taking that opportunity right now um to to refine our approach for the next three to five years um so that you know once the the trigger can be pulled to reignite all, all the events and get everybody back on tour and get all the crew out there where, you know, we're faster and better and more efficient and, and more successful than ever from, from that perspective. Um, you know, and as far as the vision for the tour for the coming years, we got some really exciting new venues that are coming to, to the table for 2021 and beyond um, both from a surfing and a racing perspective, uh, really cool new backdrops, new communities we're we're going into. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. And then, you know, at a grassroots level, uh, we're definitely focusing on some regional build-out, um, you know, grassroots events, supporting them as much as we can across the globe so that we can create a much more robust infrastructure for the sport that, you know, kind of has uh, a consolidated approach, guidelines and, and, and structure to it.
0: Sounds fantastic. Well, it sounds like a lot of work to be done as well. So, but uh, Tristan, thanks so much for coming on to SUPFM. We really, really do appreciate it. Where can we follow you online? Uh, my pleasure. You can follow, you know,
1: appworldtour.com is is obviously our main site, you know, uh, appworldtour um, for both Instagram and and Facebook. Um, you know, I'm not the big personal social media guy, but uh, I'm I'm generally behind the scenes and <laughs> and operating appworldtour. Those are the main, <laughs> main platforms to check out.
0: Excellent. Well, yeah, thanks again. It's been amazing chatting to you. So, thanks so much.
1: My absolute pleasure. You can come up and see us in Edicho.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Definitely. Always keen to go for a wave up there. And that was Tristan Boxford from the APP World Tour. So, it's a fascinating insight into how the top echelons of the sport work, and and it sounds from from that interview how tirelessly Tristan's been working for the last ten years, just to try and promote the sport and to try and obviously create a career out of it too, but to try and make um, a single work point for the world champions and for for great competition around the world. So a lot has been said about the APP in the past, and I just, I think they're great. I think they're an amazing system, and I really support them, and I hope you do too. So thanks so much for listening. If you want to check out the show notes, there are a couple of links there which we can put through. Um, Check out www.supfm.show, and we'll link it all up for you. Just remember, guys, we are working tirelessly ourselves to bring all this amazing input to you, all this amazing uh, content to you. And if you do feel like we deserve something for for all that work, well, then support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash SUPFM. We've got quite a few interesting little fun things to have there. So if you do support us, we will reward you in certain ways. So um, what else is there to say? But just stay safe out there. It's crazy times, and it just feels to me... Like the world is kind of, obviously in America, things are going really bad right now. I mean, when I I record this, it's late um, April and uh, things are not going so well in the United States, but the rest of the world and and the epicenters that were happening a couple of weeks ago are starting to think about post COVID-19 and and, and a little few, the world is is looking like it's re-energizing itself a little. Obviously it's gonna be a long time before anything returns to normal. But um, it's good to see things starting to think about the other side of this tor- horrendous virus. So thanks so much for listening, and stay safe out there, all of you guys. We really do appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Sup FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then... We'll see you on the water!